This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me pray for us. Start with some prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the light of the world. Thank you that you are the bread of life. Thank you that you have made yourself known in your son. Lord, it is a, it's a blessing that we can come here and consider you. It's a blessing that you would pursue us even as we reject you. You would pursue us and reveal your son to us in, in the pages of your word, Lord. Pray that you would help us as we look at this uh, lengthy passage that um, we would get a glimpse of who you are as Jesus tells us that he is the light of the, Lord, of the world, Lord. I pray that you would help us just get a glimpse of you, that your presence would be something that comforts us, encourages us, and transforms us. So I thank you for this time. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so we're on our second of the seven I am statements in John. Uh, we started with uh, just the, the prologue where, where we made some really big statements about who Jesus was, who Jesus is. Uh, he is the, the, the word made flesh. He is the one who makes the father known. He, he, he's how you and I can grapple with and understand and have a sense of this wonderful, transcendent, amazing creator that spoke everything into existence. John, John starts his gospel by saying, Jesus is why you can have a sense of who this God is. Jesus is why you could even understand something as, as marvelous as an uncreated being who spoke us into existence. And so then we, we see this like bold statement about who Jesus is at the very beginning of John. And then we're going through, uh, we're not going to hit every single verse. What we're doing is we're going through these seven I am statements of Jesus. So if John starts his gospel, according to John, with Jesus being the very revelation of God himself, Jesus being the only way that you and I can connect to the Father, if he starts by saying that, then as we go through the gospel of John, we want to take what Jesus says about who he is very seriously. So when Jesus says, I am this, we should be able to hone in on that and say, that must be very important if you're revealing God to us. So that's, a, that's sort of like the way that the series is going. Uh, we're on the second I am statement. It's a little light bulb up there. Um, so I'm, uh, we passed out uh, little books of John. I don't, if uh, Abraham was here, I'm sure he would have a cool sketch of one of those because he's a really good artist. Maybe um, uh, Alex is here. Maybe Alex can get some cool sketches of those seven. But we're, we're talking about uh, who Jesus is. And we said that he is the bread of life. That's what we went over. And now we're uh, uh, on I am the light of the world. So we're going to spend most of our time, if you want to open your Bibles, uh, if you want to open your little journals or, or your app, whatever it is, we're going to spend most of the time going through John 7 uh, and John 8. And if I reference a passage that's not sort of in that part of the Bible, uh, I'll have that verse on the screen. But for the most part, uh, just have your Bibles open and be in John chapter 7, and that's kind of where we're going to be walking through. Um, I want to kind of outline this section uh, in three, three different ways. When you're, when you're going through a big narrative section like this, um, there is like a, uh, almost like a joke if you can like alliterate and like outline and there's, 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 there's like, there's pastors generally put like all this weight on like how they outline the section. Um, this is how you know that I probably didn't put a whole lot of weight in how I outline the section, <laughs> but I am just trying to give us an idea of what we're going to walk through. So we have something to sort of grab onto as we go through, uh, three major sections. And then I have a little bit of a, a little bit of an excursus. We'll talk about the part in, in John that, um, that Daniel skipped in the reading. So we're going to talk about the Pharisees face plant. Um, they totally missed the boat. We'll see that, uh, in the first section. And then I'm going to hone in on one verse where Jesus talks about the Father's presence. Uh, I think this is connected back to the prologue of John. I think this is important for us to just hover on and say, this is really important as Jesus defines who he is, that he enables us to be in the presence of God. 
And then we're going to kind of close out with the, the problems of pride and hopefully see some of the mistakes or some of the ways that the Pharisees missed what Jesus was saying so that you and I can reflect and say, how can I recognize problems of pride uh, in myself so that I could experience more of the Father's presence? So let's look at, um, let's look at the, the Pharisees' face plant. The Pharisees' face plant in uh, verse 40. Uh, give you a little bit of context for if I jump into this. They're trying to have him arrested. He's already told them that the, 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 the scriptures tell of him. He said some really bold statements directly to the, the leaders of the day. Uh, he's healed people. He's fed thousands. He's, he's, he's made it very clear who he is at this point in the narrative. And, I, and, and maybe when I grew up, I thought, oh, the Pharisees were like always the bad guys, you know, like they were the, they were the obvious antagonists in the Gospels. But, it, but the Pharisees, even the, the disciples are confused at different points. The Pharisees are like, like it would be like saying the pastor's face plant. Like, they're the people that know the scriptures that, like, you have a level of respect for uh, that, that you would go to and say, I, I have questions and concerns about this or that issue in the law. So, so it's, we kind of have this idea that, like, everyone just knew the Pharisees were the bad guys. But, but these are people who culturally would have been very appreciated and respected and would have been the, where I would have gone if I had questions about my faith or about what's going on. So, the, so when we think of the Pharisees, they're not just automatically the bad guys in the story. They're people that, that even the disciples themselves are like, oh, what's, up with, what's wrong with the Pharisees? They don't, they don't totally get it. There's parts where they sort of miss the boat there. So Jesus is confronting. Jesus is saying some things to the, to the spiritual leaders, to the pastors of the day, and they, they completely miss the boat. Uh, let's look at uh, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. So there was, this, there was this idea that Moses promised there would be a prophet like him to come. And so it was pretty common for them to say, okay, we're looking forward to this greater prophet that's going to come because Moses did some really big things. And we're looking for this next Moses type figure. But in the, uh, in the, in the later prophets, they actually talk about a Messiah figure. Uh, the Christ is just a, a Greek way to say um, uh, the Messiah figure. So they're looking for the Messiah. And they didn't always see, we, in hindsight now, we can see Jesus fulfilling both of those offices. He is both our Messiah and our prophet and our priest and our king. But there was all these things in the Old Testament that they're wrestling with. And they're saying, well, maybe this is the prophet that we've been waiting for. And other people said, well, maybe this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So I thought this was interesting um, because apparently misinformation uh, was not just a 21st century Twitter, Facebook problem. Um, it was a first century uh, crowd issue, even in the even in, in our scriptures. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There, there was no secret around where he was born. If you think back in the Gospels, the men who came from the east said, "We saw a star in Bethlehem. We saw a star in the east, and so we came." And they searched the scriptures, and they said, "Oh, well, he should be born in Bethlehem. Let's go there." And so then, then babies were were killed, and there was uh, there was. Uh, you know, genocide essentially in Bethlehem and in that area because they knew that that's where the Messiah was born. So there was there was definitely an awareness of the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But at this time, sort of everything that's going on in this feast, everything that's sort of confusing the crowds, whether he's the prophet or the the Messiah, the general sort of misinformation of the group at the moment is that they don't think that he was from Bethlehem. So they, they sort of miss the boat there. The crowds do. Generally, the crowds do. And so they, he goes on. The, 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 there's division over them in verse 43 and 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him. Uh, the, the temple guards are going to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Hey, why did you not bring him? 
we sent you out for a mission. We said, go arrest this guy. And you come back without him. So they're just asking, what's the deal? Why didn't you arrest him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No, no one ever spoke like this man. And it, more directly, they're saying, actually, they use the word anthropos. They're saying, no man can speak like this. No man can speak like this guy speaks. And you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> he said some really amazing things about who he is. He's done some uh, crazy miracles. He said that all of scripture spoke of him. He said that Abraham longed to meet, see my day and was rejoiced when he saw it. And it's almost like a moment in the passage where, where the, the officers that go to arrest him have a glimpse. They are going up to the pastors who ask him to arrest him. They're going up to the Pharisees and they're like, no man talks like this. And here's how they miss the boat. 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? They're just astonished at the authority with which Jesus speaks. And the Pharisees say, what's your problem? Is he leading you astray too? They totally miss the boat. <laughs> they totally miss the boat. And I love this. They, they go on. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Do the people that know what's up say he's legit? <laughs> They're just like looking down on the crowds and these officers that they sent out. And they're saying, hey, we're the experts here. Have we said he's legit? Do you don't trust what we're saying? But this crowd, so now they just insult the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This crowd is accursed, which there's some irony in that too, because Jesus says, cursed are the Pharisees. They're actually the leaders who are prophesied in the Old Testament that were the terrible shepherds that he's later gonna tell them. The Old Testament speaks of the leaders of the day who are cursed because they lead people away from God. And they completely miss it. Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the leaders, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Just, you know, hey, shouldn't we figure this out first? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. One commentator said that uh, Nahum and uh, Jonah arose out of Galilee. And he's like, if they were just in their right mind on another occasion, they probably would have known that. But they were just so blinded. They were just so certain that they were the ones that knew what was right. That it, Jesus was not significant. He was the problem. They were so certain of their position that they even make like a really stupid statement. Because they're so caught up in their own pride. Th that's their face plant their own self-deception. They completely miss the boat. So I wanna hold for a second on the fact that the Pharisees totally missed it. And I don't do this very often in sermons, so I may not do this again. I might just sidetrack us in our heads in too many different places. But I wanna, I wanna look at, if you have it in your Bible, and it actually came up on the screen, that was really good, I didn't plan that. It says after this section, the early manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. So sort of depending on what version of the Bible you have, um, 
you're going to be missing a section of John. And I, I think this is just a, you know, this is, this is a, a good place, I think, to just stop for a second and talk about why this section in our Bible should not be in our Bibles. This section in our Bible should not be in our Bibles. And I, I, I say that controversially on, a pur- on purpose because I want to explain it a little bit. I don't know if you guys know this, but in the first century, when you wanted to get your copy of the Bible, you didn't just go get this printed out like this. And it wasn't just bigger because they, we've learned to make them smaller. So if you, if you know anything about how man, there's, a, there's a very important uh, point in church history that sort of changed a lot of things. Uh, and it's around 1440. Does anyone know what happened in 1440? Printing press, yeah. So what did you have to do before you could just print copies of your Bible? Handwrite it. That's, sit down today and handwrite all the book of Romans. With no air conditioning somewhere in the Middle East, I don't know. It just sounds like, so they had to, they had to hand copy if you, if Paul sent a letter to Corinth and said, hey, share this with Laodicea or share this with someone, someone had to sit there and handwrite every little thing. And they actually did all caps, no spaces, no punctuation. That was the most common way to handwrite it. It looks really cool if you ever see a picture of it. Um, it's just like lines and lines of Greek letters that you don't recognize. Um, so, so what happens then is as, as, as this, it's called the free transmission of the text. There wasn't like a, an organization that said, we have the text and we'll make copies and hand it out to you. Um, that's, 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 that's kind of how things worked with the, the transmission of the Quran. Uh, it's what's called a controlled transmission where the, the people in charge have the text and say, okay, we'll hand it out to you. And if we find another copy over here, we'll burn it because we have the right text. So that in God's providence, there's a free transmission of scripture. Paul, Paul and, the, and the apostles, even in, in scripture, encouraged everyone to sort of share all the, the things that were being written down. The gospels, it looks like early on, very early on, the gospels were actually shared as a, as a set. <laughs> So if you were a church and you would, you would copy a set of the Gospels, you could go, you know, give it to another church or, or send it out. Or if you were a wealthy person and you had the, the means by which to make copies of Scripture, you would do that. So, so as, as the Gospel spreads all over the globe in the early centuries, while the apostles are still around, they're making copies of these texts and they're going out everywhere. And so at a certain point, you're like, hey, it would be kind of handy to have all of these together. And so there, there's even evidence that, uh, that wh- wh- why we have a book form, instead of having like a scroll, there's early evidence that the Christians were some of the first ones to use book form, called a codice, where they would stack little, little booklets together so that they could have more of the scripture in one place. Because if you have a scroll, it's like a much harder to, to, okay, well, if you get a roll to Isaiah 33 in the middle of the Isaiah scroll, you're like, oh, man, I gotta, this is not going to be very easy. <laughs> Let's just do Isaiah 1. That's my favorite part, you know? <laughs> so, so, they, so there's early evidence that the, the reason why we have a book format today is because Christians thought, hey, if we can bunch this together and reference it a little easier, that'll work better for sort of understanding and knowing what God is saying through his apostles and through his prophets. So that's kind of how those things work themselves out. And they write, uh, they handwrite it. So inevitably, inevitably, when you handwrite these things, there's mistakes. There are mistakes that happen. And those things are called, we call that in in scholarship, it's called textual variants. So just, just like everything else in science, it's a fancy way to say mistakes. There's textual variants. And I didn't know this. I was actually working uh, at a job on the top floor of a hospital that you had to have a key to get up to the top floor and they didn't have the floor listed on the elevator because that's where they did all the animal experiments. <laughs> so, so, so I was a glorified rat janitor and I cleaned their cages for hours on ends. But one of the guys that I worked with was about the most proselytizing atheist friend I've ever had. 
he was going to get converts left and right. And I had just recently been converted, so I was a new Christian, and I'm just cleaning rat cages, and his name was Brandon, and I love him to death. He just was like, we were talking about it, and he's like, oh, you really think that's serious? Lol, that's funny. You know, like, he was just like, you're, you're stupid. He like, how can you take anything that the Bible says is serious? And I was like, a little shock, you know, like, okay, you're aggressive. Um, but I, we got into little arguments here and there, a lot of, like, a creation evolution stuff. And he said to me one time, he's like, if it's all about the Bible, you don't even know how the book of Mark ends. And I'm like, what do you mean I don't know how the book of Mark ends? And I looked it up. And if you look in the book of Mark, the ending, there's another one of those brackets that's like some early manuscripts don't have this ending. And I was like, touche, Brandon. <laughs> but I will, like every other time you catch me, I will go back and I will try to figure this out and then I'll come back and we'll talk. And we did that for a long time. And just because I loved him, I always told him I was praying for his daughter's conversion, um, so, which I did. I care, you know, her name was Paige. Um, but, but it was a shock for me in that environment, sort of like being aggressive to say, you don't even know how your Bible ends, so how can you take that very seriously? So I thought this would be a better environment to say, we are aware of what's called textual variance in Scripture. We know why they're there. We know how they got there. And we understand ultimately what you and I care about as believers is what the Holy Spirit spoke through the apostles and the prophets as they were carried by God. We carry about the God-breathed, the inspired word of God. And if John, the apostle, did not write this section that's in most of our Bibles, we can appreciate it for maybe the historical value that it has. It's a story that shows up hundreds of years after Jesus in the first manuscripts, hundreds of years after Jesus, uh, it's very possible that it was an oral, orally transmitted story, it was popular, and someone decided to put it into a manuscript. But if you're hundreds of years later, you're in Africa, and you're like, oh, hey, I found these manuscripts that have this story, but I go over here in the Mediterranean, and I look at all these other different places where the, the, the text went out all over the world, and none of them have this story, until this one place over here, 400 years after Jesus, I can, have a, I can with pretty good certainty say, John probably didn't write that. John probably didn't write that section. So I think if you're hearing this for the first time, you might be saying, oh no, what other parts of my Bible are not in my Bible? There are three major textual variants in all of scripture. Three that are more than like, most of them are like, this word was a verb and someone spelled it like a noun. Um, very, 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 very minor things like that. Or, or this, uh, in the beginning of Mark, it says that Jesus was the, the son of God, um, the Lord, the son of God, or was it the Lord, the son of God, or the son of God? Those are some, there's some question if like a word is missing somewhere. Uh, and there's resources for all of this stuff, so you can so you can see. And these resources are, are are considered when someone gives us an English translation of the Bible. That's why we have these little little bracketed areas. But there's three major textual variants. The longer ending of Mark, more than likely, was not written by Mark. That's why it's bracketed in your Bible. Um, this one right here, it's called the uh, Percipe Adultery. It's a it's a story about the woman caught in adultery. That, that section. And the next largest section is when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for I know not what they've done. Amen. There's a very, like, could he have said that? Sure. Very possible. Did that get recorded in the original gospel manuscript? Probably not. Not likely. So those are the three largest textual variations in your whole Bible. So now you, now you will not be caught. If someone else wants to tell you there's a word here that maybe is in a manuscript from 500 years ago, there's a word that happens, you know, it's handwritten. But the three largest textual variants are this section, the longer ending of Mark, and then when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they've done. Some people think that because Stephen said that, later scribes didn't want Jesus to seem less pious than Stephen. <laughs> so they put that in. <laughs> is that consistent with who Jesus is? Does he forgive those and care for those who would reject him? Of course he does. 
That's the that's message of the gospel. So whether the, the fact that that's not an original to the gospel doesn't change anything about who Jesus is, doesn't change anything about our faith. Um, so those are the three biggest ones. Last point, and then we'll kind of try to get back on track. The, uh, yeah, if, if you don't know, this is like one of my favorite topics and like, so we could just talk about this all day if you want to, um, but I won't do that to you. He, he, so why is it in my Bible then? Why do I even read this section if we know it's not there? The short version is that it was popular. <laughs> the King James Version of the Bible and the Vulgate were basically the most popular versions of the Bible for like almost 2,000 years. Not until recently can we spit out different versions because a publishing company wants to get the rights to it or something. You know, the, the King James Version of the Bible has been the most pop. Like it, there are studies that show how the way the translation of the King James Version of the Bible went has affected the English language, how you speak today. Like they actually normalized English in a lot of ways because of the King James Version of the Bible. And so when the people getting all the manuscripts together to put together this English translation had only like 15 manuscripts, and it just so happens that the one they had had that story, they put it in there. Here we are way later, and most of our English Bibles are, are built off of a, 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 a compilation of tens of thousands of manuscripts. Like we, we have things we've dug up in the sand uh, one of them is called P52. It's a little piece of papyrus that it, le it legitimately could have been copied while John was alive. Like, that's rare. That's the, the earliest one, so I'm, I'm giving you an extreme example. But we dig these things up out of the sand, and we say, oh, wow, um, this is an old manuscript, and we compare it to the thousands that we have before. So you have today, you have the most accurately represented ancient manuscript of any work ever done in antiquity by a long shot. You have more information today on the, on, you can be more confident that what you read in John came from the Apostle John. You can be more confident in that today than any Christian could ever be in the history of the world. That's an amazing thing that God has given us. God has given us, we have so much certainty that our Bibles can even put brackets in there and say, hey, because we have so much information about how God preserved his text over time, we can say with certainty, with pretty good certainty, that this passage actually wasn't from John. So that's my little excursus. I don't know really how to reel us in completely from that. Um, if you have any questions about that, feel free um, to chat with me. There's some really interesting things in history as far as that goes. But I thought because that was in our Bibles, and I wanted you guys to sort of have a, a, at least an understanding of some of those things, uh, and you weren't caught off guard by some atheist guy that you like telling you how you don't know how the Bible ends. Um, it was jarring for me. I just became a Christian, and I was like, I'm, I'm 0 for 5 with Brandon now. Um, he probably did more to like grow me in the Lord than he realizes. And I've told him that too, so that's okay. Um, so I'm gonna reel us back in a little bit and we're gonna kind of hit a couple key points in the rest of this passage. Because Jesus does go on. The, we, the Pharisees completely miss the boat. The Pharisees are so blinded by their own self-deception, so blinded by their pride that they, they even yell out ridiculous statements that they probably wouldn't have yelled out if they weren't so fired up about, about what was going on. And so we're going to pick it up again in chapter 8. Right after all of this happens, right after they go to arrest Jesus and they say, whoa, there is not a man in the world that speaks like this. Jesus continues. Look at what he says in verse 12. He brings up the Father's presence. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think about why Jesus would say that right after the Pharisees missed the boat, right after the Pharisees face plant, the very next thing John wants us to see, 
The very next thing that John wants us to see is that Jesus is making this statement about who he is. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever follows me will not miss the boat. And he's bringing this statement up, this, this idea of being the light of the world, where he says, the, the, he says, I am the light of life. I am the light of life. This is a phrase that gets picked up on from the very beginning of the Gospel of John. But this idea that God is light could be a whole set of sermons on its own. It's just rooted in, in creation, let there be light. It's rooted in redemption where they follow the burning pillar of fire and light out of the, to the promised land. It, it's rooted, rooted in, in, the, in the temple where the, the, the shining glory light of the special presence of God is, is what causes the Israelites to worship. I really like what's uh, Psalm 27, 1. This comes up in the Psalms all over the place, but here's a good one. It says, the Lord is my light. Amen. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus is saying, I am the one that brings the light of life I am the one that illumines us so that we're not in the darkness. I am the one that enables you to not miss the boat and, and see who I am and to see the fact that I bring the very presence of God into the world. Jesus sees the blindness of the Pharisees, that they completely missed it. He sees the crowds that are confused on who he is. And for the second time in this gospel, he says some really clear statements about who he is. He says, I am the one that keeps you from being in darkness. I am the one that gives you the very presence of God himself. So then how come if Jesus is making all these clear statements about who he is. Number two, we got five more to go. How come so many people are missing the boat? How come the pastors of the day, the Pharisees, completely miss it? How come they would go so far off to not even realize that what the things they're saying aren't even like basically true? Or where when the officers come back and say, no man could ever speak like this. How could they miss that? How could they miss that he's revealing God? And that gets into the kind of the rest of the conversation. And I think this shows up in the, in the, in the problems of pride. The problems of pride. So I wanna hit on just a few and walk through this real quick. The problems of pride. Look at verse 13. So, so the Pharisees said to him, because they know this is a huge statement. They, under, they know their Bibles. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. He says, you judge according to the flesh. Flesh is like a, a, a parallel way to say, you judge according to this creation. You judge according to everything in this world. He's saying the problem with pride, the problem why you miss it, is that you have the wrong standards. You are examining me in light of everything in this fallen world. And we talk about the story a lot here at Emmaus recently. God did create everything good, right, and beautiful. 
God did create everything with the light of his life in his very image bearers, beaming his glory in the garden. But we know the second act of the story. There is a fall. Things are twisted. We're broken. We don't have the ability to clearly see what is right because of sin that's built into us. And he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, you're missing the boat. Your your pride is keeping you from understanding that I'm revealing God to you because you're judging from the wrong standards. Look at what he says when he goes on. He goes, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And here, it's important, in the very next verse, he goes to where the Father has communicated things from outside the world so that you and I could understand. Verse 17, in the law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, okay, well, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He just finished in a previous interaction telling them that everything in the law spoke of him. The law has been communicating about who he is. The law is the very speech of God, the words of God that's beyond and above anything in this broken world coming into the world so that you and I could have light. And the law is speaking of who Jesus is and what he's doing, and he's pointing back to that on every single front. He's he's at a a celebration uh, in this moment. He's at the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Where, where, where there's, there's historical evidence that they had a, a light ceremony and a, a, a water ceremony. And he's, he's standing in front of everyone saying, I am that light. I am that water. Everything that's, that you're doing as a nation that's shaped around what God has said in the law is, is, is screaming at me. It's saying, this is who I am. And so when I say this is who I am and the law and everything that you do as a culture saying this is who I am, you're missing it because you're judging by your own standards and you're not judging by what God has said. And your pride, the problem of your pride is as if you're using your standards and not standards that have come from above, you're going to completely miss it. You're going to completely miss what Jesus has to offer. He goes on in verse 20. We're talking about the problems of pride, wrong standards, according to the flesh or according to the world and not according to the word. The next one is wrong belief. Verse 20 says these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Jesus is seeing the crowds being led astray. Jesus is seeing the leaders of the day completely miss the boat because of their pride. And he cares. He, later we'll see how he's the good shepherd. He has affections for his people. He cares for his people. And he says, where I'm going, you will seek me and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Some irony there as they plot to kill him. Verse 23, he says to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless for a moment, your pride is defeated by the, by the right belief that it isn't about what you can accomplish. It isn't about who you are. It isn't about how you discern things in the world. Jesus is saying, it's about everything that I do. 
It's about the reality that I am sufficient for you. And in our pride, we miss that. Uh, Another thing we say at Emmaus is that who God is and what he's done define who we are, not the other way around. Pride says, this is what I do. This is what I know. This is what I mess up at. This is what I continually fail at. That's what defines who I am. Jesus is saying, no, that's not what defines who you are. You believe me. You believe what I have done. You believe that I am the light of the world. You believe that I'm the one that will lay down my life for you. You believe that I'm the one that can give you access to the Father. And what I have done, if you believe that, that defines who you are, that destroys your pride, and that brings you more and more into the presence and the beauty and the glory of the Father. He's pleading with the crowds to say, believe in me. Believe I am sufficient or your pride is going to have you completely miss the boat, just like the Pharisees in the story. Another problem with pride was the wrong standards, the wrong belief, and finally the wrong comfort. In our pride, we want to be comforted Um, my pride was injured last night. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Bridget is a very, my wife is very comforting to me. (laughs) I appreciate her for that. (laughs) So I love her. When my pride is injured, that's usually where I go for comfort. (laughs) Make me feel better. (laughs) When, when pride is what's controlling us, when, when pride is getting in the way, the last thing we want for comfort is God himself. The last thing we want to encourage us and to give us peace and to give us rest when we're so full of ourselves is God. But that's, that's missing the source of all joy. That's missing a peace that passes all understanding. That's a comfort that never changes because God never changes. So it's only to our detriment when our pride gets in the way and we don't find comfort in God himself. And I think this is a part of what Jesus is saying in this verse. Look at 25. So they said to him, who are you? Not that they haven't had this conversation for a few chapters now. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I make the Father known. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And I would like to go back to a couple sections and just show you where he basically says that right out to them. But they missed the boat because they're caught up in their pride. Verse 27 says, they they didn't understand they were speaking to him about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. It's interesting that when he is lifted up, when he's crucified, there are many who believed when that happened. We have a, the, the, this, truly this man was the son of God. The, the, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. There's darkness for hours. There's earthquakes It's interesting that he points to that. Verse 29 says, And he who sent me is with me. In the context of his crucifixion, he's saying, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed what he was saying. Think about the level of suffering that Jesus went through in his entire life. Being in the eternal glory, rest, peace, presence, described as the bosom of the Father. I mean, you never see a child more comfortable than when it's resting in the bosom of their parent. 
leaving that to be hungry, to be mocked, to be starved, to be made fun of. I said that already. Leaving all those things to become flesh, to make God known to people who could care less about him and to suffer all those things. But he says, the father has not left me alone. He could do that with joy because he actually set aside his pride and was comforted by the father. He's the only one who has completely humbled himself, becoming a slave to the point of death being nailed to a cross. But at the same time, he says later in John that I tell you these things so that you would have my joy. So you would have my joy. He's not being facetious there. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to be comforted by God as well. He wants you to know that the Father is there with you. And the last thing he says to the disciples in Matthew is, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's called Emmanuel because he brings God with us. And he wants, he's telling us the problem of your pride is keeping you from the comfort of the very presence of God. The comfort that Jesus himself had when he suffered on this world. The reason why he could say he had joy while he was doing these things. So we see the Pharisees missed the boat, totally face plant. Jesus is all about mediating the presence of God, revealing, making the Father known to us. The, the problems of our pride so often get in the way. But he says at the beginning of John, through Jesus, we have grace upon grace, which I think if they said it, it's like stacks on stacks grace. We have a lot of it. It's, it's piled onto us. Grace upon grace, more and more love and compassion and consideration than any of us deserve. And he illustrates this in a story in chapter 9. The very next story is about a blind man from birth, unable to see from the very beginning of his life. And Jesus opens his eyes, and the Pharisees completely miss the boat again. And the guy's like, look, I just haven't been able to see my whole life, and this guy came to me, and now I can see. And they're like, oh, are you trying to convert us? They just completely miss it again. And they cast him out of the temple. They're like, you can't even be part of the club anymore. And he's like, I just had my eyes open. I see, I'm excited about this. I want to tell people. And Jesus knows that he's been cast out. And I love this. And I think this is instructive for us. Knows that he's been cast out. And in chapter 9, verse 35, it says that Jesus heard that, he had, that they had cast him out. And found him. So he goes after this guy. He said, do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe? Do you believe what I'm saying about myself? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I'm the one who's able to open your eyes. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? They missed it. Jesus is saying, if you acknowledge that your pride gets in the way, 
if you recognize that in and of yourself, you can't do this. If you come to me and believe because you know where you fall short, I'll make you see. I'll give you the peace of the Father. I'll encourage you with his presence. I will give you the light of life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to see your son to find us when we're cast out. Come to us and say, do you believe? Thank you that we get to worship you. Thank you that you continue to love us and care for us when we think we can see when we think that we can judge things based off of our own standards, when we want to be comforted by anything but the creator himself, and you are so graciously pursuing us and coming after us and loving us, and, and you've done all these things so that you can treat us like your very children. Help us appreciate that more, Lord. Lord, help us, even as we come to you the bread of life and communion Lord I pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts in a supernatural way we would see where our pride gets in the way and, and even if we don't know the answer to that Lord I pray that we would just turn to you and say you're the answer to that you're the one that can transform me you're the one that can change me and help me see Lord we need your help to see help us with that Lord we love you Thank you. We worship you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.